It's easy to say no, but when you get invited, someone says, let's do this, let's do this, say yes. If you say yes, you never know what might come from it. It would have been very easy to do something else and take the safe road, but just say yes and take the chance. Most people don't take the chance. Hey, it's Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. You just heard someone who seems to have said yes to everything. The Boston Radio and WBCN legend, Oedipus. Oedipus got his start as an intern in college radio in the 70s and worked his way into the WBCN family, creating the Boston radio powerhouse that BCN became. With his cutting-edge pink hair and his love of punk and new wave music, the musicians that made up the Boston bands like DMZ and The Real Kids, many of whom slept on his floor in his small Beacon Hill apartment, paved the way for many other bands to break out. WBCN introduced Boston in the world to The Police, The Clash, The Ramones, U2, and so many more. We don't get to ask too many questions in this episode, which is fine with us. Oedipus has enough stories to fill several episodes. But we'll keep it to just this one. So, here is our conversation with the legendary Oedipus, recorded virtually in Boston, Massachusetts. So it's the Chuck and Ronnie show, huh? Yeah, I'm Chuck. This is Ronnie. Hey, Oedipus. Nice to meet you, sir. Pleasure. How are you doing? Where, where are you calling from? Where are you? Are you in Dover or something like that? Yeah, I'm in Dover right now. You know, oh, okay. It's unusual because um, at this time of the year, I would not be in New England. I hate New England winters. And this is my first New England winter in 14 years. Really? Just think, last year alone, my wife and I, we were in Argentina. Oh, jeez. at Iwasu. And then we headed over and we were in Jordan, Israel, Jordan. wow, Malaysia, and finally Thailand. Uh, my wife is Thai, and yeah. we got stranded in Thailand, um, and we mm. got back July 1st. So it's very, very unusual for us to be here because, uh, as I mentioned, uh, this is my first New England winter in 14 years, her very first one. So, I mean, we do at least one annual dive trip uh, somewhere in the world, Palau or the Galapagos. Uh, Maldives, the Solomon Islands. Um, we're warm weather people. And uh, we have friends and family in Thailand. And But we're stranded here. So it's okay. It's just a whole different experience for me because I've always been very future oriented. Uh, it's always about the next song, the next break. Right. And in, in my case, uh, since I left uh, radio full time, it's always been the next trip, the next itinerary, the next hotel, where we're going to dine because we're foodies. Yeah. So all these plans, uh, they're on hold. So I don't have these this future activities planned. So I've channeled them in other things. Like what? I always have plenty of novels to read. Okay. Are you a big reader? Yeah, big reader. Uh, and plus, I have all my music, of course. I do a weekly new music show on Indie 617. Yep. It used to be part of Radio BDC, uh, the old FNX people. Uh, Radio BDC was affiliated with the Globe, but we broke off uh, amicably, so we're independent. And I have my website, and then I also do my annual Christmas Eve show yep. on, on WGBH. What's interesting is because because we're here, because the gyms are closed, I have this. I've set up a, a gymnasium, hmm. uh, just with some weights and an exercise bike uh, above my garage that I've had there. I had to clear out a bunch of stuff. I have so much stuff up there, not David Bieber quality. <laughs> yeah. I, Quantity, I should say, but above my garage, and I also have a storage space. And basically, it's the history of rock. <laughs> David has saved everything. I mean, he saved everything. He saved pink slips. His office used to be filled with pink slips, and and it was just packed. Yeah, he saved everything. We've, we've been there, and it's I I, yeah. I can visualize it when you say that right now. <laughs> I haven't seen that actual space, but I have been to his house, yeah. which it's just incredible. I mean, he. Yeah just collects and saves everything and it's it's nicely displayed. I have all this stuff and I've talked to David about it because I just can't say, hey, I have 30 bags filled with rock t-shirts that have never been worn. I have all these jackets. Uh, I have all the paraphernalia that was only given to programmers. Uh, that was There were one-offs that whether they're snow globes or little pens or openers or and some other really cool stuff that they gave us that you know, the Guns N' Roses um, floor mat, for instance, right? Some of this stuff was, was never sold. Uh, it was just given. And it really is the history of rock, but it needs to be cataloged. And then you have to decide where you're going to put it. And as David and I discussed, it's like 
yeah, I could donate it to somebody, but then is it going to sit in the basement? Think of all the paintings in the basement of the Museum of Fine Arts that nobody ever sees. Hmm. So what do you do with this stuff? But before I decide what to do with it and donate it, because I'm certainly not going to bother selling it, um, even though it's very valuable, I still have to catalog it so people can at least decide if they want it or not. So. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because I'm currently getting my master's at Northeastern University. And for my field work, I'm going to be working at the David Bieber archives. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So I've been talking with Chuck White, and um, he's going to be my my director, I guess, there while I'm there. And uh, I'll be organizing all their – I guess Chuck White went through – they have like thousands of posters that he's right. – he curated like 300 of them. So I'm going to go through all those, take pictures of them. I'm going to catalog them. Oh, and uh, so it should be interesting. Yeah, the posters yeah, I, alone could be an exhibit. My gosh. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, he has, he just has everything. Uh, I have select posters. I have all, all these boxes of paraphernalia. I was thinking post COVID, I'd like to hire, you know, a couple of people, uh, maybe from Berkeley or some school that would be interested in this. And they'd have to go to the warehouse, which is not, you know, glamorous, but yeah. they have to go through it all and organize it and catalog it. I mean, I'd pay them to do it, but it needs to be done. I've started doing it, as I said, I've gone through uh, upstairs in my garage and just started opening boxes. Prior to uh, becoming a DJ, I was a self-taught photographer. I ended up taking photographs of uh, a number of uh, Boston rock bands. I did some album covers like for Thunder Train and for The Real Kids. Mm -hmm. DMZ started in the basement of my house in Beacon Hill, so I have all these great shots of DMZ. You know, and there are, I have the contact sheets. But <laughs> that one box alone, you know, it takes hours just to go through that one box, let alone boxes and boxes of CDs. I've saved every CD that was ever given to me. There's at least 17,000 CDs on the wall. I have a separate room that was a bedroom that is only filled with vinyl. I have all the 45s there and many of them, not many of them, but some of them are autographed like those, like from the Joe Strummer, Flash, because that was my band. I have all of this and that, that, doesn't really have to be cataloged because that's sort of organized, but the boxes of stuff really does. Well, I'll tell you, we have a very good friend who's worked with Above the Basement named James McDonald. Oh, I know who, James. You know, I James. Worked, I, he worked at BCN. That's correct. Yes. And he, um, I mean, I, I reached out to a bunch of people before we talked, uh, people who worked with you. I reached out, reached out to Mark Cates. I, I reached out to James. James had a little note. He says, uh, hello. Uh, and it was great help to me in his career, played a huge role in him getting traction professionally. And he, he did tell us a story ages ago about how he went to your home and he organized your entire music collection one summer. So I'm wondering if he's the guy who, who organized your records for you. Yes, he was one of the people. One of the did. people. I mean, you have a big ton of them. I right? don't know which home he went to. I have to think back. It was either when I lived in Brookline or Dover. That'd be back in the 90s, I'm guessing. Yeah, he's okay. probably in college, you know, like he was that that Berkeley student you're looking for currently. Right. You know? uh, then it was probably uh, when I lived in Brookline. I also had a couple of women that, that did it as well. Um, yeah. That was down, I kind of had this basement space next to the garage in Brookline and uh, he probably did it there. I also there just it. bought this. Did you Why take that picture? I don't know if I took that one, but I took uh, shots of the band. John Felice really wanted that kind of that Stooges look. So, sorry, tell us what you're looking at there, Chuck. Because so this, this is, is a real kid podcast. live at the Rat from January 22nd, 1978. Um, who 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 did the whole compilation? What's the uh, Crip Records and Dog Meat and Boston Groupie Dues present the Real Kids Live at the Rat. That's what it is. Oh, that's Live at the Rat. Okay, that's Live at the Rat. Okay. Um, I the, the Live at the Rat album. Do you have the whole Live at the Rat album with the different bands? Uh, I don't. Oh. God, I knew that. with the neighborhoods and all that. Yeah, um, I did all the photographs in there. Okay. See that. Um, I thought that was something else. There's a real kids compilation that was recently put out with a lot of my photographs in there. DMZ, the real kids, uh, a number of bands. Mink Deville. Uh, I took a lot of Willie Deville. As I said, I was self-taught. I was living on Beacon Hill, Brownstone, with five other people. At Three Strong Place, right? You got it. How'd you know that? I do my research. Well, Ron, it's right across the street from your office. My office? Ron works at MGH. Really? Right across the street. So, oh. 
Oh, it's right near Charles Street? It's right right on Charles Street. There used to be uh, a gas station there. They took that down. I don't know what there's, there's now. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's really, it's just a short alleyway. Yeah, Buzzies Roast Beef used to be on the corner there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this, this brownstone that I lived in with five other people, J.J. Uh, Rassler lived there. And then when J.J. decided to form a band, they, they formed in the basement of DMZ, literally formed yeah. in the basement. So, you know, I got to know Mono Man really well and the whole band. And it was an artistic household. And my rent was $62.50 a month. <laughs> and I needed 100 bucks a month to survive because that went for right. the utilities. So sure. that plus stamps uh, enabled me to survive and live there. And that's how most of us live because we were all kind of artists. There were lots of there were people in theater. There were musicians there and all walks yeah. of life. Uh, and it was the, the early 70s, and it was a great, great place to live. And when I moved out, uh, I finally, you know, I got a job at BCN. It was part-time, but it was enough to survive. And I moved to Cambridge in Charles Lacodera's old apartment. And the guy called me because we owed him money. And he said, I'll sell you the brownstone. And all, he wanted 40 grand. And that was like an astronomical amount. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah sure. And for a brownstone on Beacon Hill today yeah, i know <laughs> that's like an acura now <laughs> well you know yeah. what the um you mentioned dmz oedipus in the basement of that and i'm visualizing this now in that place and the name of this podcast above the basement was sort of born we're, we're only about five years old now and uh really the concept is those bands, those kids, those emerging concepts and creativity that happen in the proverbial or the actual basement and exactly. how they branch out and some do, some don't, but it's about your comfort level. When, when you think about, I mean, there's so much we could talk about with, with the bands that you've been involved in, in when they came out of the basement. You think about the people that came over from overseas, the classic ones we hear about, about, of course, the Clash and the Police. What are some of the ones in, in the in the local scene that you remember sort of at that time coming out of the basement in a sense? Well, most of them came out of the basement because they mm -hmm. didn't have a place to rehearse or if they did it, they, they were very, very funky. But you had DMZ, you had the real kids, you had Fox Pass, uh, you had the Inflictors, so many different bands. Your memory fades and changes over time. And if you ask me now, and if I looked them up, I could... Give, I could run off the list of all these bands to you. And this was even pre-neighborhoods. Of course, there was Willie Loco Alexander. But this house was great because I would go to the Rat. I lived at the Rat. I mean, most people think, no, I lived at the Rat. Or after that, it was Cantones or the Channel or the Club. This is where I spent my evenings. And I would introduce myself to these bands when I was, mm -hmm. was on the radio at WTBS before it was MBR. It's hard to imagine that nobody was playing these bands on the radio. It did not exist. The college radio was me. And that's not, I'm not, that's not Bragaggio. It's just, that's just the fact. And I was creating this show and it eventually became punk rock because it was defined that way. But nobody cared about these bands. It was, it was music that just did not fit anyone's um, psyche or uh, their imaginations. It was noise to them. But these bands believed it was DIY. And they just believed it was not the, the blues-based rock that Boston was used to, the, the boogie bands, uh, the Duke and the Drivers type of bands, yeah. the Jay Miles type of bands. It was different. It was yeah. loud. It was energetic. It was sloppy. But it was real. And it was passionate. And it was rebellious. It's hard to imagine a time when the Ramones were so anathema to people that they just hated it. The first time I played the Ramones, you thought it was the end of people just like, oh, my God, you know, beat on the brat with a baseball bat. It, the same with the police. The first time I played the police, it was like, this guy's singing about a prostitute and he can't sing. This is like the worst thing I've ever heard. And, you know, Sting is considered like, you know, but in the day, uh, it was just music that didn't fit people's expectations. Well, let me um, ask a quick question on that. Do you do you think that you came down to the rat at night? Obviously, that became your that was your culture. That that was you. Do you think you were drawn to it because of 
something about your love for that, I'm going to use the word alternative, or that different type of music at the time? Or did you fall in love with that type of music because you had landed at the rat? So in other words, was it, did something draw you to it or did that sort of create this trigger in you that I love this? I've always been a rebel. Um, I've always uh, gone against the grain. I live a very existential life. I think life is absurd. And I also have never wanted to live a life of quiet desperation. So I've always just lived every day as if it were my last, because I never want to be in that position where I said, man, I wish I had done that, or I wish I had done this, or I wish I had done that. And I've done that virtually all of my life. Even after university, I had a full scholarship to law school. And I thought, oh, okay. But I didn't know if I wanted to learn another language. I certainly didn't want to be part of um, uh, the institution, the establishment. But I contacted them and said, I'm just not ready yet. I'd like to take a year and think about it and come. And they said, no, they didn't have gap years then. So basically I said, okay, fuck you. And I went to Europe. I just took a knapsack and went to Europe and traveled all over Europe. Clearly it was the best decision I had made, but it was the same thing. I rejected what was safe and secure and, you know, definitely, you know, a a decent uh, profession for nothing. I had no money. I grew up very poor. I hitchhiked around Europe and I ended up on a kibbutz and I met people from the kibbutz and I worked there and a guy on the kibbutz said, Oedipus, Boston's your type of town. (laughs) And after I traveled all of Europe, I eventually got tired of wandering because you're, you're kind of drifting. And as much as it's great to see another museum, another great cathedral, uh, and you're still reading your literature, you you reach a point where there's no destination, which you don't necessarily need one, but I wanted something more substantive. So I moved to Boston with, again, the knapsack and a guitar, and the rest is history. I came upon this, this rock scene because I was reporting for WBCN. I was a volunteer, but the, the news director knew that I got around town and I was up all night. Then I'd get up in the morning and write for Charles Lacodera. So because I was up all night, I just went to different clubs and different venues. And, and I came upon this nascent rock and roll scene that was really different and really exciting. And I was just drawn to it because it was so different. It was so unusual. And there was a group of us and, and we were part of this scene. And another thing, it's hard to imagine. So we were all part of this, but we wore leather jackets and some of us had piercings. I got a tattoo. In the 70s, people with tattoos were bikers. It wasn't like you got a, a piercing and a tattoo. I was the first person in Boston to have multicolored hair. I had pink hair. I had purple hair. I had green hair. Yeah. I couldn't find a hairdresser to do it. I had to do it myself. I finally found somebody because nobody had colored hair. I mean, you think, big deal. In the day, nobody had it. It was the same as when these bands would come and play. Uh, the Ramones would come and play, and they would play for two nights at the Rat. Dead Boys would play for two nights. And because I lived on Beacon Hill, a number of these bands actually stayed at our house. Like the Dead Boys, for instance, they just slept on the couch at this house because we had couches. Stiv Bader slept in my bathtub, in one of the bathrooms. <laughs> Mink DeVille, he would come over with his wife, Toots, and they'd stay up all night. And so finally, about four in the morning, five in the morning, I'd go to sleep and they'd be in the corner of my room just sitting up um, doing drugs. And then when I got up, then they'd go to bed. <clears throat> I mean, this was just the nature of the scene. And this is how we lived our life. I didn't have a goal about, wow, I'm going to be a great DJ someday or be on WBCN someday. I was a volunteer radio station playing this music that excited me. And it generated a following. And remember, this was a 10-watt radio station. It wasn't 100,000 watts. It wasn't like a gigantic rock station. But eventually, because I got ratings, uh, I was hired by BCN by Tommy Hadges, and he, he gave me an overnight shift. He said, I'd like you to play this music you're playing, but I'd like you to incorporate it with some of the music we're playing. Of course, I didn't do that. I just played punk rock. And I figured, okay, I'll be fair. Who cares? I just didn't care because I was doing what I wanted to do and what I felt passionately about. I didn't do things stupidly. Okay. And that's how I've lived my life. And that's how eventually, because what I did, because I did it intelligently, um, I was eventually hired by BCN as a full-time DJ and then made program director. And it's the same thing that I, I did after I left radio. I could ha- I had other opportunities. I mean, I could have stayed in radio, gone to other stations. I mean, eventually in radio, 
it's really a dying business in terms of disc jockeys because eventually you plateau out. You know, you keep getting raises and you get a salary and eventually you just become a number on an ledger. And they said, why are we paying this person this much when we can pay somebody a lot less because they don't take creativity into the equation. So when my top guy left at uh, Infinity Broadcasting at CBS, um, I knew my days were numbered. So when I finally left, I had the opportunity. Uh, I was offered the GM job. I was offered the GM job at Emerson Qual uh, College, for instance. And there were other gigs available, but I didn't know if I wanted to do that again. I had done you know, the greatest rock station in the country for the most part. I mean, all the bands came through. We broke all these bands. I met countless individuals. I became friends with many of them. And I had so many stories, so, so many adventures. My life was incredibly exciting and incredibly rich. But I said, what else do I want to do? Well, I'd love Thailand because I had a syndicated radio show for a number of years that was picked up across the country. It was a three-hour radio show. And one of the stations picked it up was in Bangkok. So I said to the producer at the, the studio where we recorded weekly, I said, you ever been to Thailand? And he goes, no. And I knew he liked to travel and I loved to travel because it was in my bones ever since uh, wandering Europe and the Middle East. We went to Thailand for two weeks, fell in love with the country, fell in love with the Buddhist country. I love the, the spirit there. It's the land of smiles. Hmm. Everybody smiles there. You see somebody, you smile at them. They smile back at you and they don't think you're a pervert. You know, <laughs> it's really wonderful. And I remember the first time I went there, I'm sitting in traffic. And this is before unleaded gas. And the traffic's abysmal in Bangkok. You don't move for 20 minutes. You just sit there. And it's like it's sweltering. And I'm in a cab and I'm looking around. And I'm just all ugh, pissed off. And I look around and nobody's upset. No, people are just waiting. They'll let people cut in. And a guy comes up with a little uh, a jasmine lay and he rolls down the window down and he, he buys it. Uh, it's called a, a pumalai. And he puts it over his Buddha and he prays to the Buddha right there. And I go, wow, I'm the only one uptight here. And I'm completely chilled. And so after that, we try to go to Thailand whenever I could get a vacation. But 10 days to two weeks is the most you could really get to be away from the radio station. Uh, after I left, I said, why don't I skip a New England, New England winter, which I really hate. I enrolled at the leading university in, in Bangkok, Chula Longkorn, to study Thai and Thai culture. Oh, wow. And I, I moved to Bangkok. And I fortunately met my wife the first week I was there. <laughs> and the rest is history. You know, a year later, um, huh. we were married. And when well, was yeah. that? That was 2007. We were married in 2008. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, my wife's a, a Thai attorney, uh, an, uh, an author. Uh, she's written a book in both Thai and English. And, and now she's a very advanced yoga instructor. Oh, wow. uh, when, I, when I say an attorney, uh, attorneys in Thailand are a lot different than attorneys in America. Uh, they're not a litigious society. They don't chase ambulances. It's a highly respected profession. <laughs> it sounds like you've, I mean, it seems very serendipitous that you ended up at BCN because, so you got a BCN like what, 1977 around that time? I started writing for Charles in 70, say 75. In 1979, I got hired as a part-time DJ. So, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the, um, WBCN, the American Revolution, the, uh, yeah. Sure. I, I, you know, I contributed to it. I mean, yeah. it's, it, it's a, a charming early history of BCN. Yeah, the right. That's exactly right. It, the problem is, and, and there's a big problem with the film, is there's no crawl at the end. BCN did not stop in 76. Right. Matter of fact, BCN became much more successful, much more important, and much more influential post-1976. It was the start but it almost went out of business. The fact is, when I became program director in 1981, BCN was getting its ass kicked literally and figuratively by WCOZ, which was called Kick Ass Rock and Roll. That was I remember slogan. I had the bumper sticker too. <laughs> and they played the hits, you know, they played Boston and Zeppelin and the Who. We were all over the place. The DJs were playing whatever they wanted, whether it be John Coltrane or a little classical and some folk and, and some rock. And it was like completely unstructured. It wasn't desirable. And their new owners came in and they invested a lot of money. When they bought the station in, in uh, 79, it was $3.5 million, which seems cheap now. Much, But then it was an astronomical amount for a radio station. 
and BCN was failing. And my job was to turn the ratings around. Once again, it was, I did it my way. Here's these owners. We had defeated them in a strike. They tried to fire half the staff when they took over in 79. I was a shop uh, steward, strike organizer. Mm -hmm. And three weeks later, we won and they capitulated. And once again, they hired a purple haired punk rocker uh, to become their program director. And I asked the, the, the two owners at the time, I said, why me? Because they could add anybody in the country. Hmm. And who says this today? But they said, because you're intelligent, because you're not afraid to take chances, and because you'll learn from your mistakes. I mean, who says that to somebody these days for your company? Here, it's yours. This is These are the reasons why. But they trusted their instincts. And sure enough, we put COZ out of business. And we were the dominant radio station in Boston into the 2000s. And it only started to fail later on is because eventually the company became too large. And then you get the suits and corporate second guessing you from a distance. So you beat and to your own drum and, and you're someone that I, I don't imagine it, it stressed you out too much. But I'm wondering, when you look back to 81 and that amazing opportunity, did you feel the pressure that you're you're this purple haired punk young guy that's like they're giving you this opportunity. You got to deliver. Do you well, do you remember that. that kind of stress or was it more excitement? It was complete excitement. My first yeah. memo to the staff, the big signage said, "Rock this town." It was stray cats. We're going to rock. Now we're going to have some structure because we cannot just be whatever we want to play. That's self indulgent, and self indulgence you know, is going to kill the radio station. We need people want to hear. They don't listen from your show when you start until when you end. Okay. They tune in at different times. So they want to hear some hits, but they want to hear some new songs. But we also wanted to, I also wanted to make sure I played one of my famous uh, sayings. I'll, I'll play the fucking Grateful Dead if that's what it takes to break the clash. The clash. Yes, we play the fucking Grateful Dead, who I hate. I've always hated the dead. Don't ask me why. I know people love them. I've always hated the dead. And I've been to dead concerts, and believe me, in every form of inebriation. So you can't say that. But the clash were my band. And we broke the clash because they were the only band that mattered. Yeah. So wow. we integrated the clash with Grateful Dead and with Fleetwood Mac and with uh, uh, the, the Ramones. And I'm also very proud of the fact that Boston music was very, very important to me. And eventually, you know, I had uh, my new music show also on BCN called Nocturnal Emissions. It was the Sunday night show where it was all brand new music, you know, whether it's nationally, uh, locally or internationally. It was all brand new music. Eventually, I had to expand it to Boston Emissions because there was so much good Boston music. So we had a Boston music show. But what I was beginning to say is I'm very proud of the fact that I, we always had at least one, if not two, Boston bands in rotation next to The Clash, next to The Grateful Dead, next to The Who, next to uh, The Allman Brothers, local Boston bands. And I'm not talking Aerosmith or The Cars. The, they're national. I'm talking local Boston bands. Like Johnny Angel will tell you from uh, Thrills and the Blackjacks, he'll say, I think he had like 13 different songs in rotation on WBCN at one point. Uh, throughout that whole era, because Boston was a great music town. I mean, we created the we created the rock and roll rumble that Mark Cates talked about. And, you know, we brought him in. He'd come in and judge with Karen Glauber and uh, another guy from New York who worked for uh, uh, Delta. And we were the we were the finals judges every year. We'd always judge the finals. And it, as, as you know, the to be in the rumble, we had uh, 26 bands, 24 bands. Sorry, it's been a while over seven nights. And you had to be played at least once on WBCN, okay? Huh. And you couldn't be on a major record label. Okay. And you could not have been as that band in a previous Rumble. You could be in a new band and be in the Rumble. Right. But you can't, you know, the if you if you did not make it, you could not be in again unless you were in a new band. Yeah, that's so, a, that rule still exists today. You know, it was, it was a phenomenal uh, showcase for Boston music. And as Mark Cates said in, in one of your in, in one of your podcasts, Boston didn't get the credit it really deserved. We had a lot of really good bands that didn't really get the shot they deserved. Some did, like Willie Alexander did, and clearly Till Tuesday did. Yeah. But there's some bands that are just phenomenal that just really didn't get it and for whatever reason. As you know, many are called and few are chosen. For instance, I was on the air in 1980 when John Lennon was assassinated. 
I had to make that announcement. And my uh, intern, uh, Carrie, comes running in with a teletype from the AP and says, because it went ding, 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 ding. She's not going to believe this. And I read it and I flipped out. I, and I, I mean, I mean, tears were in my eyes. I stopped the song. I made the announcement. Uh, and I went and I played a Beatles song, a Lennon song. And then I went to play commercials and commerce just didn't seem right. And I wasn't the program director then. It was 1980. Um, and I just said, I can't do this. I can't play this. And I put Beatles music on. And then musicians started calling me like Sal Baglio from the Stompers and and and, and real kids and, and um, the Liars. And were the Liars then? No, maybe it was still DMC. It was Mono Man for sure. They all came up to the station and started pulling out Beatles music. And what's interesting, you can read about this in, in that edition of the Phoenix in 1980 in December. And in that edition, there's a little ad for the Paradise uh, along the side. And it has the different shows, the Paradise and different radio stations sponsoring with the very top, the very first, because it was coming up December 13th at the Paradise, December 13th for $3.50. The headliner was Baruga, opening for Baruga, small type, U2. <laughs> yeah. So it's sort of like John Lennon was assassinated, but yet this was the beginning and we were the only station then playing U2. We were playing I Will Follow from the import single. Carter Allen had found this and, and, once again, I was not the program director, and we started playing it. So we all went to see U2. And as you know, the rest is history. Nobody stayed for Baruga, even though they were the headliner. And there was nothing wrong with them. But once again, many are called and few are chosen. And U2 just is U2 today, and Baruga is barely a footnote. Well, I love, I love how you mentioned, like, you know, there, there are a lot of Boston bands who didn't get their due. But that said, there's also a lot of Boston bands who other bands who did make it call them their inspiration. Uh, Mission of Burma is one of them who, who the Pixies said that they were a big inspiration for us. I mean, these, these are seminal bands out of Boston, like DMZ, like the Real Kids, who maybe a lot of people haven't heard of, but they influenced so many other bands that went on to do other things. I and mean, that's that's the great thing about Boston, early Boston rock from the, uh, from the 70s and 80s that, you know, kind of get missed when people talk about boston music they talk about aerosmith and all that which is fine but you know you're kind of missing the those people who slept who slept on the floor at three strong place um right. like the neighborhoods uh like dave minahan and um you know they well, just didn't get there i mean david's just going on and done you know he's a, he's a producer and a recording artist i mean david's you know he's had a really fine career and, and it, the sad thing is some some of these other people have not that's the, yeah. that's the, yeah. the, but that's, but when you're an artist, that's what you do. I never expected to have this as a career. You never knew how long it was going to last. I never did anything to think, oh my God, if I do this, I'm going to get fired. I did it because it was the right thing to do. Yeah. We took a lot of chances. I mean, a lot of chances. I mean, who goes commercial free for a free South Africa? We did. Who boycotts Shell? We did. These are advertisers, but they were doing the wrong thing. So we took a stance. Yeah, we could. they could have said, your guys are done. We can't deal with this. The advertisers don't like it. Is there anybody but, these days that you can identify with, with that spirit? These are different times, right? But th these are the types of personalities, people like you, that go against the grain. It saddens me that there's so few musicians speaking up. If BCN still existed, and I were still there with my team, and we still had the support from above like we used to, I can guarantee you that we would be all over Black Lives Matter, all over it. We'd be running PSAs for it. I can guarantee you that we would have been completely and totally anti-Trump. If you look at alternative stations around the country, all of them did these lame get-out-to-vote, get-out-to-vote campaigns. No! What's more alternative than being against Trump? Trump writes his own script. You had so much so much ammunition right there that you could have had yeah. you could have done programs around it, but nobody had the balls to do it. Even though all the artists that alternative plays, they're virtually all anti-Trump. All of them. There's Bo uh, Angel Wood does Boston Emissions, and she has she's constantly playing Boston local bands, and she's a, a huge proponent right. of that. And she does she really does her due diligence for that. 
but there's no commercial stations that do it at all. None. No. College stations are still great. MBR, yep. phenomenal. Yep. I mean, they got great programming, you know, they, and some of these college stations are terrific. Nobody takes that real, real stance. You, when you take a stance, you're going to piss people off, but that's, yep. that's not only uh, the right thing to do. It's great programming. You want controversy. Yeah. That's why BCN was successful. It wasn't just the music we played, which was important because we pushed the boundaries of music, but it was also everything in between the music. It was the production. It was the humor. It was the DJs, personalities, big personalities. Yeah. They had something to say. It wasn't coming up next. This one's called You Just Heard. No, I want stories. I want humor. I want passion. I want commitment. I want belief. I want well, it was like live. I mean, it's it's interesting because now there's like a million, literally, I think almost a million podcasts out. Mm -hmm. And it gives this license to have anybody can say whatever the, the hell they want. Mm -hmm. But it's a wild west. In the 70s, 60s on up into the 80s, you mentioned, I think yourself in one of your interviews, Oedipus, is that you guys were the internet. When you think about it, like between the, the photos you took and others took, plus the audio on the airwaves and the thought behind some of that, whether it was controversial or not, this is, it was, it was meat. It was, uh, it took a stance that was internet. I mean, it was one way, but so is the internet too. We, we log on, we take this for granted since the nineties that it just exists, but that was you on the airwaves. All right. You could call in, but we, we were the internet and BCN in the day was as vital as the Boston globe or the Boston Red Sox. We were Boston and we were proud of it. And we took that, and it was a big responsibility. And we took it very seriously. We had a lot of fun with it. We had a lot of fun with it. But we also pushed the limit. And we also, we knew that we were entertainers. But within the scope of entertainment, we could also be political. But we could also do lots of great things. We raised hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars for charity. Great mm -hmm. charity. We started, we started uh, financially through... Uh, one of the CDs we released, and John Rosenthal will um, verify it, we started Stop Handgun Violence. Very, very proud of Stop Handgun Violence because uh, they, they used to have the big billboards in the Mass Pike, you know, when you drive right there by Fenway Park. That was our organization. And because of that organization that exists today, um, I'm still part of it, um, we have the lowest death by handgun than right. any state in the country. We're not anti-gun because we know you can't get rid of guns. That's impossible. There's more guns than people. But you can have sensible gun laws, sensible, so that some kid doesn't pick up the gun from underneath your bed and kill himself or his, his buddy. you got to have a trigger lock. Right. That's sensible. That's not taking away your Second Amendment rights. It's not right. taking, uh, taking away your, your rights if you have to have your gun locked up when you're not using it. Okay, so someone accidentally can't steal it and use it, or you need to have a background check in case you're uh, a felon or uh, a domestic abuser. I mean, these are just sensible gun laws. We have more laws about seatbelts. We have more laws governing teddy bears than we do against guns. That's just one of the things that, that we did as a radio station, and we don't see these radio stations doing this at all. They're all just in for commerce, and as you can see, they're getting killed. Because now they have the internet. There's so much competition for ad dollars. They don't want to offend anybody. So consequently, you just have this kind of homogenization and this kind of easy listening radio station. That's just really not, it's not compelling anymore because you can get anything you want on the internet. You hear a song on the radio, you're not going to wait and call up and request it. <laughs> you're going to go and listen to it on, on YouTube or Spotify right away. So if it's not, if it's not terrestrial radio... And, you know, I, I used to have a subscription to to Sirius and then I let it lapse to save a little money. If I do listen to terrestrial radio, I'm usually way down low in the dial in the 88s right. where where Angel is and where college radio is and where the NPR and, and GBH are. I'm always down there. Where can a DJ go? Is, is there something missing that needs to be recreated? Does it oh, do I mean, I agree with you. I mean, the only thing I listen to is NPR unless I'm on the net, you know, okay. And of course, college radio. I really, I love NPR uh, and the different uh, programs there. What we need is we have to hope that the, once again, the inmates can take over the asylum. And I would hope eventually because of iHeart and Intercom and these stations, they keep cutting staff. You know, it, it's constant. If you, if you're, if you read any of the trades, they constantly lay off people. 
all the time, making people do two, three, four jobs. And all these people, they're never going to come back to radio because there's just no jobs for them. But we would hope that eventually some of they would shed some of these radio stations as they become less and less profitable. And then some astute businessman who maybe made some money from GameStop (laughs) 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 buy the radio station and say, okay, let's take this over and do what we want to do and start it all over again. And the way you do it is with compelling programming. Yes, you have music, but you do it with attitude. You know that right-wing radio gets people to listen just because it's controversial and people, they take a stance. Well, we need that again with music and we really need to go up against it. We need to take on this right-wing extremism that exists. We need to refight the civil war because that's what we're fighting now. We're, We're in a civil war and we have over 70 million racists out there who are still fighting the civil war. They can't accept the fact that we're a brown nation. They just can't get it through their heads that we are no longer white. It's turning brown. So get over it and start dealing with the problems that we all have, which is poverty, food insecurity, and the death of this planet. It's unbelievable when you witness this and you see what's happening in Washington and around the world. It's frightening. What do you say about the people, you know, the whole shut up and play, shut up and bounce the ball kind of thing, which I'm totally against. I, you know, I, I hear people who've gone to like a Roger Waters concert and they say, you know, I'm so sick of his political bullshit that he keeps on talking about it at concerts. I'm like, do you know who Roger Waters is? Do you, do you know that this is what he does? What place does, not a radio station, but a DJs and music have to do with that? Play, they say, you can leave anytime you want. Anytime you want. I'm not asking you to buy my records. I'm not asking you to listen to my records. I'm not asking you to come to my concert. If you don't know who I am and you don't embrace what I'm about and you don't respect what I'm doing, what are you doing here? I re- You can see on Twitter all the time with Tom Morello. They don't get it. Wait a minute. Tom, you're so political. He was enraged against the machine. What part of that don't you get? It's unbelievable that these people don't understand the artists that they deal with. But everybody has a microphone now. And the sad thing is with all this misinformation, it just spreads and it spreads and it spreads. And it's humorous. But when you read that people believe that Hillary Clinton was running a pedophile ring out of a pizza parlor, and there are people that believe this, what kind of world are we living in? So I've been trying all my life, as I've mentioned, and I've done it, and I continue to do it, to live my life to the fullest. And I think of all the experiences I've had that have been phenomenal, whether in the 70s when Willie DeVille calls me up and goes, I'm on TBS now, you know, I'm this this flaming red hair now, you know, it's bright red with big red Elton John glasses before contacts. He calls me up and goes, I just recorded my album here in New York, but I got to go to LA to record the vocals with Jack Nietzsche. He goes, do you want to come with me? He and his wife, Toots. He called her his girlfriend, but it was his wife, Toots. She actually pierced my ear in my bedroom. That's another story. <laughs> but with a needle and a cork. Okay. Um, nice. I go there. He goes, well, we're going to take the train because I don't want to fly. I go, okay. I get there. He goes, uh, we're going to get capital to pay for your ticket, but we don't have one for you. I stowed away on the train from New York to L.A. in their compartment all the way. Stowed away. <laughs> When the conductor would come by, I would hide in the upper bunk. I swear to God, three days across country. That's New York to, to L.A. New York to L.A. Holy, holy. Experience like that. I was fortunate. Uh, I toured Japan with David Bowie. I was a fan, and he was a, became an inspiration, a hero, and then he became my friend. And I got to spend hours with David Bowie. Oh, lucky oh, you. Wow. Because when you, when you get behind, because they're all a, 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 an artist that big. They always have to be on, always on. You know, you're in the public, you're on. And David, he personified stardom. I mean, what a star. I mean, what a, but when they can let down their hair, so to speak, and just hang out and be themselves, it's so much, it's so interesting. And so because they treat you as a person and not just as a fan, you know, as a friend. So you can actually converse at length about all kinds of topics, about literature, about art, about theater, about music. 
I went to Japan, I mean, uh, you know, to interview David for a broadcast, right? And I did do the interview. It never aired. I do have it somewhere. These are the things that, that are in my files that, that would be amazing to hear. I'd like to hear this one again. This is when he was with the band. This is when that conglomeration Tin Machine, which was probably my least favorite conglomeration that David did. But yeah. So I interviewed everybody in the band separately, and then finally David. So David comes up to my hotel room, right? We're sitting in the room, and you know we're talking. We do the interview. We, we talk, and I turn the mic off, and uh, we just sit there. And then we shoot the shit for another couple, three hours. Hmm. Finally, I had to – David was continuing the tour. I had to come back to Boston. I had to ask David to leave my room because I had to catch a plane. <laughs> but you have to leave. <laughs> it's like I'm kicking him out. Before we let you go, Oedipus, um, I want to talk about just what you're doing now. So the Oedipus Project, the Oedipus Foundation, can you just um, t tell us what's your mission there? Well, it's it's, it's kind of interesting. They, they, I started as a volunteer because the music inspired me. It was my passion. Yeah. And for the most part, I'm a volunteer again. It's a labor of love. Why? Because I hear all this great new music that you just don't hear anymore. I mean, it's, yeah, it's on the internet, but it's just not featured. Right. So I posted on my website and there's a friend of mine, Jonathan L who, who lives in Berlin, who used to be an alternative uh, DJ here in, in Phoenix. And he does a podcast and I, I post his podcast on Mondays. Um, and then I, I post during the week. I also do uh, a new music show on Indie 617. It's all brand new music for the most part, two hours of all the new music that I hear that week. I play whatever I want. Uh, it's on Indy 617, the internet station, and that's a labor of love as well. And the foundation is a way for me to donate uh, to uh, the causes that I believe in. I like to say artistic offense, environmental defense, and uh, life longevity. In other words, radical arts. I support lots of um, artistic organizations that really push the boundaries and artists that push the boundaries. Also, clearly, um, the environment. Uh, whether it be Stop Handgun Violence or the Conservation Law Foundation or other people that are trying to save this planet, and then um, causes that prolong life. Uh, I'm on the board of advisors for community servings. Uh, community services in Jamaica Plain. They started as an AIDS organization, and now they feed over 1,400 people a week. Mm -hmm. They deliver meals to 14 hundred people a week with life-threatening illnesses, hmm. people who we've discovered that food is medicine. If you keep people healthy and they eat nutritious meals, appetizing meals, meals that look good, we have nutritionists on staff. So if you have renal disease or if you're a diabetic, we create certain meals for you and we deliver these meals so you can eat during the week, delivered because you know, you're too sick to work. We deliver these meals. They're flash frozen. They're and they're appetizing. Hmm. And if they're nutritious, you can get healthy. They're not. What do you, what do you call that program specifically? It's, it's called community servings. Okay. They're an amazing, amazing organization. Um, and they employ people from the neighborhood. Uh, they have job training there. Hmm. They have people uh, who, who are down and out and they train them how to cook and how to um, deal in, in the food industry. And they, they, they have a job placement. They're called Community Servings, run by a guy named David Waters. 92 cents of every dollar raised goes to feed people. So they have a very low overhead. Hmm. What they do brings tears to your eyes huh. because they're, they're so altruistic. And it's so sad that we don't have programs run by the government, financed by the government to take care of our own. When one in five kids goes to bed hungry every night in this country, it's pathetic. What is wrong with this, our society? What is wrong with the human race that we can't take care of our own? It's just pathetic. So I try to do what I can. But as I said, I, I live my life to the fullest every day. I'm busy, 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 uh, just filling my life. Uh, I've learned to cook. I find that to be very creative. So I like to cook in the evening, and make dinner for my wife. <laughs> someday, someday I will hit the road again uh, and travel. But in the meantime, I miss going to concerts. I miss mm -hmm. seeing bands. I miss dining out. I miss the theater dramatically. Uh, the last great show I saw was uh, FKA Twigs at uh, the House of Blues. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. One of the best concerts I've ever seen. FKA Twigs. A dance performance as well as uh, the vocals. She's incredible.
So at least I have a lasting memory because I don't know when I'm going to get to a concert again, because even when we're vaccinated, is it going to be safe? Yeah, I know. It's, it's tough times, but, um, Oedipus, you know, when I reached out to people asking for them to comment or give me stories, you are so loved by people. Uh, yeah, Didi, Didi Kearney, uh, who are, you know, Didi, she, I've worked with her several times. She says, please say hello to him. Mark Cates, James, uh, Adam Klein, you name it. People are, they have such a deep love for you. I just want you to know that. That's, that, that warms my heart. I want to say that circling back to one thing you, you, you said that resonated me an hour ago or so was that um, I'm very thankful for whoever that person was in the kibbutz in Israel that <laughs> said, go to Boston. Yes. And I don't know if you know who that person is now or what the story is, but I, I love the fact that the road just goes where it goes. And we are very thankful that that conversation happened. You sure are. Well, thanks. It's it's it, you take out of that. It's easy to say no, but when you get invited, someone says, "Let's do this. Let's do this." Say yes. Yeah. You say yes. You never know what might come from it. It would have been very easy to do something else and take the safe road, but just say yes and take the chance. Most people don't take the chance. You guys take the chance, and uh, and Chuck, if you we'll do another one of these, and we'll we'll spend an hour talking about Charles. <laughs> That'd be great. Charles would love that. Fantastic. Thank you for the, uh, the, the conveying that from those people. That means a lot to me. I'm glad yeah. to have that then very much. Okay. Well, take care of yourself. Peace out. We would like to thank Oedipus for this conversation. You can learn more about the Oedipus Project at oedipus1.com. That's the number one. Go to abovethebasement.com. You can sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. From all of us at Above the Basement, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. And remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique. <laughs>